Good morning. It's great to be together on this Lord's Day, and we're happy to have each of you this morning, and certainly appreciate all of you being here. We have a lot of visitors this morning, and uh, we always count it a blessing to have you and invite you back when you can. We've been studying the book of 1 Thessalonians and some of the events that took place that you read about in Acts chapter 17 on Paul's second missionary journey, and I suppose one of the downsides to doing these studies like this where they span multiple services is when we have a lot of visitors, you don't have a lot of context, but we have a podcast where you can find those previous studies if you like, or maybe even more novel ideas, you can actually open your Bible and go read Acts chapter 17 and start in the book of 1 Thessalonians if you want uh, some additional context. We'll review those studies just a little bit as we get into the, the third part of this series of studies. The church at Thessalonica As I said, Paul found it on his second missionary journey, and he came across them as he entered into Macedonia and went through Philippi, and the stories that we're all familiar with, the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, and as he left Philippi, he made his way toward Thessalonica, where he established this church that was full of a bunch of Jews, a bunch of idol-worshiping Gentiles, and just a diverse group of people in a city that was about the size of Amarillo. Um, it was on an important uh, trade route there through Macedonia, and so it was, it was an important congregation, a congregation that the Apostle Paul grew very fond of, as you can see in his writings. And we talk about in uh, the, first book, uh, the first study in this series, if we can get a projector here, there we go, in the first uh, chapter of Thessalonians, uh, First Thessalonians, he really um, kind of praises them, and we've been talking about the fact that they were kind of a model congregation. And in, uh, as we read in verse number 5 of First Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And I'm one slide ahead here. Let me get back here. There we go. Verse number 8, if I can get it to come up. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And we talked about how this church in Thessalonica, this newly formed church, and Paul had only spent three, four weeks with him. He wasn't there very long, and a lot went on in those three or four weeks. But he talked about how their faith went forth across that whole region. And he didn't even have to talk about them because they were doing what they should be doing. They were very much becoming a model congregation Not that they were sinless or didn't have problems, but they were doing things right, and they were kind of on fire for God and doing what he asked them to do, and he praised them for that. And he says they became imitators of of us and of the Lord. So they looked at at the things Paul taught them in, in Paul's life and the way he acted in his life and became imitators of that. And he, he praised them for that, how they followed after the Lord and became imitators of him in much affliction. If you read Acts chapter 17, it talks about the persecution they faced there in Thessalonica. They ended up being run out of town. They were staying in the house of Jason, and they dragged Jason and, and some others out, and they were just being heavily persecuted, and they ran them out of town where they went on to Berea. And then those Jews ended up catching up with him, Berea, and then he moved on to Athens. So there was heavy, a time of heavy persecution for that newly formed congregation. And they were holding fast. They were imitating Paul and imitating the Lord and doing what he asked them to do. And he was proud of them for that. And as we moved on in our study number two last time, in verse number nine of chapter two, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, and we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of Christ. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. And we talked last time about the need for us to be spiritual influencers and how that's a role we should embrace 
and how we should understand that we're going to have an influence on other people. And one of the key roles to being a Christian is being influential in the lives of other people. Whether or not you're able to be effective with the gospel is whether or not you're, is ultimately boils down to whether or not you're able to influence the life of another person. Now, you got a lot of help with the word, but it's our job to be the hands and feet with that. And how he said, my conduct, and you saw how we lived. And we talked about last time the heart of the influencer and the motives, the motivation of the influencer, and ultimately the behavior of the influencer and how all of those things have to line up to be effective at influencing the life of another person. If your heart's not in the right place and you're not motivated by the right things, and then if your actions ultimately don't exhibit the fact that your heart is in the right place, then you're not going to have that level of influence that's needed to spread the gospel. And he, he was encouraging to them in that. And he talked a lot about how they could look at his life and how all the things that he did were with that kind of motive. It wasn't a selfish motive. It was all for the sake of the gospel. It was all to accomplish God's will. He wasn't trying for any kind of personal gain and glory. He worked hard when he was with them so that he couldn't be accused of those kind of things. And everything he said to them, he lived out in his life. So he's commended them in chapter 1. As he went into chapter 2, he's talked about this level of influence and uh, behavior and being able to impact the lives of others. And as he goes into the end of chapter 2 here where we left off and beginning into chapter 3, he really starts kind of a, a, a passage on encouragement, on, on lifting them up and re, reinforcing their faith. I was thinking about Brother Danny's lesson um, talking about spiritual maturity. Again, there's another one for our visitors that you, you may not have heard, but he spent a lot of time talking about what it means to have a mature faith. And he read this passage in Philippians chapter 3, beginning verse number 12, where he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. And he's talking about you know, becoming a Christian, wanting, wanting the things of Christ, wanting, looking forward to being resurrected with the dead in Christ. Not that I've already obtained it or that I'm perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if, any of you, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So Danny talked about that spiritual maturity and, you know, this idea and how we think about these things. Not that, not that I'm there, but there's this dichotomy of the fact that, hey, I know I'm a sinful being. I know that, that, that I'm going to stumble and I'm going to make mistakes, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't try. That doesn't mean I shouldn't make the effort. And that's the way he describes this, that I'm press on toward that goal. And as I think about the church in Thessalonica and what Paul's trying to reinforce with him here, that's what I think about, this idea of spiritual maturity and how and pressing on, the idea that we should press onward. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as we think about some of these thoughts in chapter 3. There's an idea uh, in the world called continuous improvement. Maybe you've heard this in your place of work. I work in IT and software development, and it's a concept that we talk about quite a bit. Um, I work for a bank, and so both in banking and in software, we talk about things like this. But this idea of continuous improvement in an organization. What does that mean? It means that you think about processes and procedures and the way you interact with customers, the way you treat customers, the way you treat coworkers, the way, the way we interact with each other on a daily basis. And, 
and with, always with a mindset of, I'm going to try to be better at this tomorrow than I was today. And we may make some small change to a process or a procedure and make a little tweak because we learned something. Maybe we messed something up and that was a learning time. Continuous improvement. And there's an idea in Christianity that mirrors this line of thinking. For a long time, I had a view of Christianity where I just thought somebody kind of got there. You know, you look at somebody in the faith that you may look up to, maybe it's an elder or an evangelist or somebody. You know, I remember the evangelist would come through as a kid. And, you, you know, we, we talk about we don't want to put these guys on a pedestal, right? But as a kid, we kind of do. Let's be honest. We look at those guys and Man, they, they're really good at preaching and teaching, and they, they interact. You know, they're all often good at interacting with the kids, and you feel they come through town for this one week out of your year, and you feel like you get, you know, every kid in the place feels like they just became best friends with Mike McCorkle. And that's because Mike McCorkle makes every kid in the place feel like he's best friends with them. But you look at a guy like that, and you think, man, they're just, they're there. And I don't know what age I was when I realized that they're not there, but you young folks, if you can learn anything from the study today, realize you do not get there. There is no there. The, I, the life of a Christian is a life of continuous improvement. And I suspect, I'm about to be 45 years old, I suspect you could talk to someone in here that's 65 and someone that's 85, and they'll probably tell you the guy that's 45 doesn't even realize this yet. The earlier in life, you can understand that there's continual improvement, that being a Christian is a continual cycle. Like Paul said, I press on. I'm not there, but I'm going to keep pressing on. And Brother Trevor talked about this last Sunday a little bit in First John, talking about um, the, the ties between the idea that we're sinful and the idea that we don't want to be sinful, right? We, we, we shouldn't sin. You shouldn't sin. But if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. You know what's going to happen. And that's what Jesus is there for. For the times that you do stumble, he's there as an advocate for us in that. Trevor talked a lot about that and encourage you to listen to that study as well. Continuous improvement. And for a newly formed congregation in Thessalonica, and a really good message for us to really dwell on and think about is the idea that we should always be striving to be better. And I think in my personal life, when I when that finally clicked for me that there is no getting there, then it's, it's, it helps you build up your faith. Because for me, it was always a view of failure, right? I'm, I'm never going to get there. I know I'm not. I'm not going to get there like these people are. And so now it's a mindset of improvement. It's a mindset of I'm going to gain a little more ground today. And it may be some little incremental change. It may be the tiniest of changes you make, and you're better today than you were yesterday. And then someday you're going to wake up and it's going to be 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road and you're going to look back and hopefully be able to say, hey, over those 20 years, all of those little incremental changes that I make, and maybe sometimes they weren't so incremental. Maybe sometime they were groundbreaking. But over the course of a lifetime, we look back on that and think, I'm a, I'm, I'm a little bit better today than I was 20 years ago. And that's what we're striving to do as Christians, continuous improvement, and I hope you enjoy the study of the morning. Let's pick up toward the end of chapter 2 in 1 Thessalonians, uh, where we kind of left off last time. Verse number 17 of chapter 2, he says, But since we were torn away, he's, he's ending verse 16, reminding them 
of the persecution they're dealing with and how God's going to be the ultimate judge of that persecution. God's going to deal with it. You know that they're facing that stiff persecution, but ultimately it's going to be God who, who gets uh, vengeance on that. And so in verse 17 he says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. You, if you remember back to Acts chapter 17 in the story there, they, they were run out of town by the Jews in Thessalonica. Jason and the others were pulled out into the streets, essentially thrown in jail. They posted a bell-type situation, finally got things calmed down. Paul and, Paul and Silas and Timothy moved on to Berea, where the Jews from Thessalonica ended up following them. So that stuff is very much on his mind as he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, probably from Athens or from Corinth, but shortly after his visit there in terms of overall timeline. And they were torn away from him, and that's the way Paul viewed it. But he said it was, it was, in, it was in person. It was physical. They tore us away physically. We've been mindful of you. And I think the important thing that we want to understand there is this idea of spiritual aftercare, the fact that Paul recognized that he wasn't done with the church in Thessalonica, that they weren't there yet, that there were some improvements that needed to be made. And that was on his mind. And he had, you're going to see it as we go through this chapter, chapter 3, he had this burning desire to understand where they were at. You know, they don't have the nightly news. They didn't have email or text or Facebook. You know, the church in Thessalonica wasn't Instagramming their current status of persecution. He didn't have that. And he had this feeling inside him that he needed to know where they were at. And that's because of this spiritual aftercare that he desired to give them. He established his congregation, and he knew that they weren't done with that. And it tells me that Paul was really concerned with that. Think about the Great Commission. Go to all the world. Baptize people. Make them Christians. And then what? Teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. It doesn't stop. He went into Thessalonica and he baptized a lot of people. It says a lot of people obeyed the gospel when we read about that account in, in uh, chapter 1. But there's the rest of the commission. Make disciples of them. There's more work to be done. There's growth there. There's continuous improvement that needs to occur. And he had a good recognition of that. Now listen to how he finishes chapter 2. Verse number 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. I read this passage a hundred different times because it feels like the language in that passage, it, it feels like there's more there. But I think at the end of the day, he's just setting a model for love of the congregation. He's establishing a model for love. And I talked to some of the guys about this. One of the comments Danny made about it, which dovetails in with one of my points coming up here in a minute. But Danny said, you know, he, when he talked to him about it, he never said uh, that he was concerned about their physical well-being. He never talked about anybody getting beaten or dragged out into the streets or any of that kind of stuff. It was always a spiritual concern. In every case that Paul talked to them, and you can go back and check the letter. I did it after Danny made that comment. I was like, it feels right, but I'm going to go check it. And it's right. In all cases, he talks about their spiritual well-being. He certainly cared about them, but he knew the persecution was there. He knew that going in. And then it, and then it was lived out while he was there in Thessalonica. So that was just kind of part of the deal. What he really cared about was their spiritual well-being, and he's kind of establishing a model for love here. They got to his heart. 
And I think it's, you know, again, as we think about evangelists and people like that, you know, it, it's not just that he was just carrying out the mission here. He didn't just, Thessalonica wasn't a stop on his schedule, you know, that he scheduled a couple years out to do a meeting, and he was going to go in there for a week and hopefully baptize some people. And he went in there, and some people decided they were going to become Christians, and they obeyed the gospel. And, okay, we checked that box off. The mission's, you know, mission's complete in Thessalonica. What's next on the schedule? That's not how it went. He developed this deep love for that congregation. He was concerned about him. He became part of their family, and they became part of his, and his life got wrapped up with the lives of the church there. And I, the events of this chapter show that, that he had that deep love for them. So he goes on in chapter 3 here, where they, where they split the chapters on this. Um, it's not really as much of a hard split in, in terms of his thought process. Those two just kind of segue right into each other. But listen to what he says. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort in your, you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we, that we are destined for this. Again, if you remember back to the events of Acts chapter 17, that's what he's referencing here. The persecution that they felt personally. Paul felt it personally while he was in Thessalonica. And it was, it was eating him up inside. It finally got to him that, that he didn't know what was going on. So he had left Timothy and Silas. Uh, as he made it to Athens, he had left Timothy and Silas in Berea. He sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to get a report on him. It was eating him up inside. He didn't know how they were behaving. He was concerned about the faith. And what was his why? What was his why for sending Timothy? To establish and exhort you in the faith. What does that mean? Continuous improvement. He wants to ground them. He wants the foundation. He wants to continue to build on the foundation. He wants to improve. He wants to know where they're at. He wants to follow up on that. And it's a tremendous model of love that he lays out here on what it means to help other Christians grow. And I would argue, and I think he's arguing, that that love impacts the way the church works. That love impacts whether or not they did grow. That love impacted whether they remained in the faith. Or did they give in when he sent Timothy back for the report? That model for love of that congregation is one that we can all learn from. And as we think about improving as Christians, let's think about that. And while we think about doctrine and doing all the things God wants us to do, don't forget about love. If we don't have that love for each other, we're not going to have the true concern and the care. And I think that marries up with the idea of spiritual influence and all the things that we've been talking about here. And his desire was for that congregation to continue in the faith. And you can almost feel a sense of impatience in his voice here as he's really, you know, trying to learn about this. Now, this is all one letter that's written, so he already knows the report because about we're about to talk about it. But he's conveying that sense of urgency in knowing about their, about their aftercare. Listen to what he says now in verse number four. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So there's, maybe that's the one reference to the physical, even though that was still spiritual persecution. But Paul said, hey, we told you when we were there that there was going to be some affliction, and that's exactly what came to pass, and we all know it. It's almost kind of, almost kind of like he's 
getting that out of the way, right? Let's, let, let's get that out of the way. We know it happened. We told you it was going to happen. It did happen. Let's get it out of the way. Now let's talk about spiritual things. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He badly wanted that report. And what was his concern? His concern was that they had fallen back into how they were before he got there. His concern was that their spiritual growth didn't take hold good enough. And you can almost hear it in his voice that he's, he's just wondering if that was the case or not. And if you think about the temptations of the society that they lived in, it would have been probably a relatively easy thing to happen. It would have been something that could have happened relatively easy. But his focus was on spiritual things, and that's where his priority was. If in uh, his letter to the Colossians, he talks about prioritizing spiritual things. And listen how he words it. If you then have been raised with Christ, talking about people that have devoted their life to Christ, people that have become Christians, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your desire on things above. Why? Because when you made a decision to become a Christian, you died to the things of this world. Those things shouldn't be a priority anymore. They shouldn't even be on your mind. We got to get up. We got to go to work. We got to make a living. We got to raise our kids. We got to do all those things. But it should all be in the context of Christ. That should be the priority. He said, set your minds on those things. Where do your, what do your minds dwell on this morning? Are you worried about work and school all the time? Are you worried about making money? Are you worried about what somebody said to somebody else about you? Or do you dwell on these kinds of things? Do you dwell on these kinds of things a couple times a week when we're here? Or do you set your mind on these things? He said our life belongs to Christ now, and that should be our focus. And he wanted to make sure that the Thessalonians were established in that, that they hadn't turned their back on those things, that they hadn't reverted. You know, he talked about, um, with respect to the conversions there, how many of them left idol worship and all those kinds of things. The, all the things that their, their society had to offer, he wanted to make sure that they hadn't turned back to those things. So let's listen to the report. Verse number six, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And I want to draw attention to the fact that he was comforted personally, Paul was, by their faith. And I think maybe we don't talk enough about this, that, 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 that looking to those people that we are close to in the faith should be a sense and a source of comfort for us. Genuine Christian affection for others strengthens our own faith, and it strengthened Paul's in this case. When he got this report back of the Thessalonians, he was strengthened in the faith. And they truly loved Paul and longed to see him as he did them. How is your love for others this morning? How is it relative to your faith? Do you look at brothers and sisters, and when you see examples of their faith in action, does that strengthen your faith? Does that make you want to improve and be better because of how you see their faith and see them behave? 
Maybe you see them do a unsolicited kind deed for somebody. Have you ever seen that? I've done that before. You see somebody do something like, they're doing what they should be doing. And that builds you up. And maybe it makes you think you should be doing that. And then you go behave that way. The faith of the Thessalonians strengthened Paul. Think about how different this would have been if Timothy would have brought a different kind of report back. You know, if he would have went back to Thessalonica and came back with the report to Paul, and I don't know if he reported in person or if he got a letter to Paul, how that happened, but what if he would have come back and said, you're not going to believe it, Paul, They've, the persecution has got crazy bad since we left, even worse than we were, when we were there. They've all returned to their idol worship. They've denounced God, knowing of God. They've denounced Jesus as the Christ. They've gone back to their old life. They didn't even want to talk to me. They didn't want to see me and be associated with me, much less hear the word or hear any kind of additional encouragement. Think about how different that would have been. Think about the impact that would have had on Paul's faith. It would have all been in vain. They would have labored and cared for nothing. And that's probably the kind of news that Paul dreaded, and that's why you can hear this sense of anxiety and, and uh, this, you know, this sense of anxiousness in, in hearing and urgency in his voice as he wanted to hear about this. And frankly, as we said, those fears were not unfounded. You know, he probably, you know, I don't know what he would have handicapped the odds on that they would have turned from the faith, but he had a genuine concern or he wouldn't have been talking this way. And so it must have been such a relief for him to hear that. And all, the, all of the trials and persecution that they faced, that they were holding fast in the faith, and they loved Paul and Silas and Timothy and those that worked with them. They had, they had kept, kept hold of that genuine love. All of this stuff was working against them. But they were, their faith remained unchanged. That's really encouraging. And we need to take comfort in the faith of others. We need to take comfort as we look around and see brothers and sisters doing faithful things and knowing that we can impact others that way as well. That if we'll live faithfully and we'll set those kind of examples and be the spiritual influencers like we talked about last time, that we'll, we can help others grow in the faith. And it was really good news. I ran across, for some reason, this didn't dawn on me till late this week in my studies, and so I didn't have a chance to dig into this like I would have liked to, but for some reason, the, the word good news caught my attention there in the context of the gospel. And if you look up the Greek on that, that's exactly what it is. That is trans, the exact same translation as, that is used. I think every other time Paul uses that term, it's translated, preach the gospel. And that's fascinating to me that he uses that same terminology in their report of the Thessalonians' faith to him as the same terminology that's used in preaching the gospel. And the commentators are all, you go to Google on that, you get all sorts of different opinions on that, right? It makes sense that you would, because it's certainly not anything that's definitive. But I think the point that I'd like to make with that is the gospel nature of his good news. And this, is good, again, goes back to the spiritual, prioritizing the spiritual over the physical and all that kind of stuff. But he was concerned about the gospel. And the, the report on the faith of the Thessalonians was good news to him. And it was good news that they were carrying out the gospel, that they were preaching the gospel, that they were advancing in their own faith. One commentator said it like this, Paul's faith was greatly strengthened by the good news Timothy shared with him, so much so that his own faith was strengthened 
that he used the same word in every other place that is translated preach the gospel. Pretty fascinating stuff if you want to dig down that rabbit hole a little bit sometime on your own. But it was certainly a good report. He was certainly encouraged by that report. And essentially, he was fired up about it. As he goes on in verse number eight, he says, For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray more earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He was made alive by that report. He said, we live because of the report of your faith. He was fired up about it, and he felt joy over that. He was excited about it, and he was relieved to hear of where their, where their faith stood. And what was behind it? What was, the, what was behind that burning desire? Why did he have to have this report so bad? He said that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He wanted to fill the gaps in their faith. Whatever was lacking in their faith, he wanted to take care of. He wanted to teach and admonish and exhort and supply what is lacking in their faith. He wanted them to continuously improve. He wanted them to press on toward the mark of the high calling of God. Maybe it was some problems he observed that he knew he needed to address. Maybe it was something societal that he knew he was going to have to address. I suspect there was a hint in that. We're going to, I referenced it last time, but we're going to end up talking about the second coming of Christ with this. Apparently there was some teaching in the area about what that looked like, and, and it led him to write maybe the most comprehensive discussion in the New Testament about what the second coming looks like, and we're going to tackle that one here in a couple months. So maybe that's all of the things that he had on his mind when he was talking about what was lacking in their faith. But he had a genuine concern for that, and he wanted that follow-up, and it was consistent and constant, and he wanted to see that improvement. And he desired for them to grow in that. <coughs> now listen how he closes out chapter 3 here. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Such a direct tie between love and their faith. And that's how he ends this chapter. Increase in your love for one another. Abound in that. Grow that love as we have for you. And he even still here, it's almost as though Timothy's report, it, it kind of scratched the itch, but it wasn't good enough. He still needed to get there. He still wanted to see them. He still wanted the face-to-face -face time. And you know how that is if you, you hear of somebody or you get a report. Jordan gets a report of David from Nigeria. That's not the same thing as seeing his face when he gets home. And that's how Paul felt for these people. And such a direct tie between the love and the faith here and how he wanted that to abound. And why did, he want it? why did he want that? Why was he con concerned that their love for each other would increase and abound? So that they would improve. So that they would establish their hearts blameless in holiness before God the Father. Isn't that what it's about? So that they would become the kind of people that God wants them to be. So that their faith would look like God wants it to look. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He's... You can, you can tell he's kind of leading up to this discussion of the second coming already. The language is starting to hint toward it. But everything he wants for these people ultimately leads to that. It leads to the goal. That's what, that's what Paul called it in that 
passage in Philippians, we read it. He presses on toward the mark or toward the prize. I think it's translated in the ESV, toward the prize. What's the prize? It's getting to be with Jesus. And that's what it's all about here. And that's what the continuous improvement's about in the follow-up. Pressing on toward being the kind of congregation that God wants you to be so that you glorify Him, so that you glorify His Son, so that when He returns, you look like He wants you to look. And so while you struggle with sin, you always strive to do better. It's a consistent improvement cycle. And we always do better. Let's strive for continuous improvement. Let's strive to be that kind of congregation where we have that kind of love for each other that will encourage each other in the faith, that will encourage each other to be built up and be better than we were tomorrow than we were today and be there for each other when we stumble and know that we have an advocate when we do stumble. If you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel, we want to offer an invitation this morning. The invitation is Jesus. And the prize of that is this, is that you get to be with him someday, that you get to have your sins wiped away, and that you look forward to this. And the payment for that is you choose to live life as a Christian, that you die to the things of this world, that the things of this world don't matter, that priorities are different. Priorities become spiritual. Yeah, we got to live in this world, and we got to be part of it, but that's not where our focus is. Our focus is seeking things that are above. And if you haven't done that this morning, we encourage you to do that because the prizes are measurable. And the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And he addresses that with them. And we're, I'm looking forward to that study. I'm not ready for it quite yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Spending a lot of time thinking about that and looking forward because it's a really comprehensive study. And he talks about that second coming. Jason talked about that as he did his gospel lesson. He says in the second letter to the Thessalonians, which was a short follow-up to the first ones, that you who are troubled rest with us. It was a message of encouragement to them. What were they troubled with? They were troubled with all this persecution that they experienced from these people. They were troubled by life. They were troubled by the situation they found themselves in. Found themselves in. But he said, you rest with us. Because Jesus is coming back and he's going to be revealed with his mighty angels and he's going to take vengeance on those that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not you, church in Thessalonica, because the report I got on your faith is that you're standing fast, that you know God, you obey the gospel, and you're living in a way that reflects that. And you take comfort in that, and you get to be with him. If you haven't obeyed the gospel this morning, think about that. We encourage you to do that. Maybe you're here this morning, and you find yourself in a rut. That happens It happens to us in life. It happens to us in our faith. We get in ruts. We get in situations where we don't improve. I don't want to be standing in 10 years looking back, thinking about continuous improvement, and if I made any incremental improvements in that over the past 10 years and look back and think, I'm no different than I was 10 years ago. Let's be better. Let's try to do better. Let's press on toward that mark. And if you're here this morning and you're in a rut or you need any other help that the church can offer, we want to offer that this morning, that invitation for you as well. If you would, either class, come and have a seat on the front as we sing this invitation song.